A new series of messages begins this morning. Lord willing, we'll get through it all. And it's entitled, For the Love of God. You hear that phrase sometimes almost used as a profanity. But I'm going to use it in the appropriate way today, for the love of God. And over the next three or four weeks, I'm going to try to deal very thoroughly with this subject. I'll often mention the love of God. Of course, if you preach the Bible, you have to frequently mention it. But on the other hand, I don't always deal with it in depth. And it's been a number of years since I preached anything uh, resembling a series on this wonderful subject. I'd like for you to open your Bible to the book of 1 John. 1 John, at the end of the Scripture, 1 John chapter number 4. And uh, I'll give you a moment to reach that passage, and then we'll stand together and we'll read God's Word and look at the subject, for the love of God. 1 John chapter number 4, and stand with me please as I read beginning in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 10. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, you, you should mark that in your Bible, perhaps. Make that stand out, those three words. God is love. It doesn't just say that God has love. It says that God is love, that everything in His being involves love. Continuing, and this was manifested, the love of God to us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live, that we might have life through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. What does propitiation mean? It means actually satisfaction. It has the idea of appeasement, that God sent His Son who would pay a price to appease the wrath and justice uh, that God had and held against evil and sin. And that Christ on the cross satisfied the anger that God had toward evil upon the earth. And Christ, therefore, paid the sin debt for us. And this, the Scripture says, is the propitiation. It is the demonstration, if you will, of His love for us. Now, John chapter 3, verse 16 is the most familiar verse in the Bible. And the heart of that verse is the love of God. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, I don't think you even need to turn there. Let's all say that one together, part of our text this morning. Will you join me? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, this is a big subject. It involves hundreds of references in the Bible. And uh, I feel pretty inadequate for my subject today as a preacher. 
Someone said uh, they pictured inadequacy as a little leaguer who was standing at the home plate in the last inning of a tie game in the World Series. And you think about that, that's a pretty vivid picture of what it means to feel inadequate for the task. And I don't often tell you I feel inadequate. I don't want to come up here and express a woe is me and lack of confidence attitude. But on the other hand, when I deal with the love of God, it is as Jim so wonderfully described to us a few moments ago. It's so great. It's so big. It's so vast. It's so important that I feel like anything I say would be a very, very poor representation of it. If you're taking notes with me, three points this morning. Number one, the source of God's love. Number two is a description, inadequately done, but I'll do my best, a description of the love of God. And then lastly, the measure, the measurement of God's love. Three simple points. Number one, what is the source of God's love? And I will tell you that the source of God's love is God Himself. It is the nature of God to love us. It is God's nature to love us. And you're way ahead of me up there. Take that down. It is God's nature to love us. You read just now 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 8. God is love. That means that God's very nature, the essence of what God is, is that God is love. Now, I'm going to use a word I don't use every day. It's intrinsic. What does intrinsic mean? Intrinsic means that something is the very nature of something. For example, yellow is intrinsic to gold. Heat is intrinsic to fire. Cold is intrinsic to ice. It's the very nature of the thing. You can't you can't remove it without uh, affecting the very nature of something. And love is intrinsic to God. It is His nature. He would not even be God without His love. It would totally change everything about Him if He were not a God of love. Now, the reason that I emphasize that love is the nature of God is that we get this thing turned around because in our culture we get all these messages and they're wrong messages about God's love. You would think that many people, maybe even many Christians, I hope not very many here, think that God loves us because there's something wonderful about us. May I tell you today, God's love has almost nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what He is. You see, if His love were based upon what you and I are like, then His love would always be changing because we're always changing, wouldn't it? But God's love is unfailing, and it never changes. It never varies because it is the very nature of God Himself. So God doesn't love me for anything in me, and He doesn't love you because of anything in you. I really don't deserve anything, nor do you. Anything in me that is good, anything in me or you that is admirable, anything in you or me that is excellent, well, it was given to us. 
And it was given to us because of God. All this self-image psychology that's been bantered around, even in Christian circles, unfortunately, have made people feel like, oh, I'm so special. God is, God is just very blessed to have me on his team, you know. No, 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 no. It ain't like that. Everything good that I, there is about me, to God be the glory. And everything good about you, it's all because of God and his love and his glory. It would be supreme arrogance on my part, wouldn't it? For me to think that God loves me, that there's anything about me that impresses the one who made me? How ridiculous. I came over this morning. I was looking for an illustration, and I got a good one, I think. You see this pot right under these flowers right here? They cover it up, but that is really a beautiful vase. And it has all kinds of, um, looks like fruit, a very intricate intricate uh, design there of leaves and fruit and stuff. And I look at that, and I think, you know what? That is a very beautiful vase. If you remove the flowers, the vase is about as pretty as they are. And you know what? The vase probably, but this vase, were it a person, this vase, you know, could get real proud of itself, couldn't it? You know, there's a hundred vases in this church, but I'm the one that gets to sit in front of the pulpit where every eye is focused on me. And you know what? I've got four television cameras pointed at me. Untold thousands of people, maybe millions and billions are looking at me today. I am something. I am the ultimate vase. I'm so proud of myself. But you know what that vase is? It's a piece of clay. At one time, it was a hunk of mud laying on a platform and beginning to spin around, and a potter took his hands, and he began to fashion that piece of clay. And now, everything that's beautiful down there does not redound to the glory of the vase, but to the potter who made it. And you know what? You and I, when we get to thinking a little bit too highly of ourselves, need to remember we're just a hunk of clay. We are just, and if you don't think that's true, just go visit a cemetery about 100 years from now. And we're going to go back to the earth from whence we came. And everything good about you and me is because the one who made us, not because of anything we've done. Amen? That's a good starting point for the love of God. It's all about him. It's interesting when you study your Bible. Do you know that when you read the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, and I wish I had time to show you, but it says that God made the earth, he made the firmament, he made the sea, he made the animals, he made the trees. Uh, pardon me, he spoke all of them. I said that wrongly. He spoke, and there were the trees. He spoke, and there was the cattle. He spoke, and there was the firmament. He spoke, and there was the sun, the moon, and the stars. But when it comes to man, it changes. He didn't just speak man into existence. He scooped up the clay, and he made man. Everything else he spoke into existence, but he made you and me. And then it says, he made us in his image. He made us in the image of God. We are his representation, if you will. He made us from the dust of the earth. And why did he make us? What was God's purpose in making us? There are several. I will only name one today, but one of the primary reasons God made you 
is because love, the nature of God, must have an object to express itself. If God's nature is to love, there must be an object for that love to be expressed, to be demonstrated. Love that's held and not given away ultimately doesn't even appear to be love. And so God being love by nature, then God expressed himself by making an object that he created to shower his love upon and who would then, he hoped, reflect that love to all of the world. That's true even with us. Here's a man and a woman, and they get married, and they love each other. And between them, they have this marvelous procreative gift, and they create this little baby. And this little child is born, and they look down upon that child, and immediately, just like that, they love that little baby. I was not so impressed. My wife got pregnant, and I thought, well, we're going to have a baby and all that. And I wondered about that baby, and then the baby came. And they handed me that little baby, seven and a half pounds or whatever he was. And Norma said, we're going to name him, or we'd pick the name, William Tory Monroe. And for the first time, it dawned on me, I'm a father. I helped make this little fella. He's going to look like me in some way, I hope. I hope in some way he might reflect my image, not too much because, you know, he'd be better off if he looked like his mother, but let there be a little bit of Bill there somewhere. And we made him. And nobody came. I didn't have to come to the church and take a course on why you need to love your baby. I hadn't held that little fella 10 seconds and what? I loved him with all my heart. Why? I would have defended him to the death. Why is that? Because we made him. He was an object of our love. And ladies and gentlemen, Almighty God, the creator of the universe, scooped up some clay one day and said, I'm going to show people how really great I am. They're going to know a little bit about my intelligence and my power and my greatness. And he scooped up that clay, and he began to form that little human being, Adam. And in a few moments or whenever he had him finished, and then the Bible says he breathed the breath of life, the soul, actually, literally, into him, and he stood up, and he was an image of God. That's man created as the object of God's love. God spoke everything else into existence, but he made you, and he made you for him to love. God's love is so much a part of his nature that think with me now for a few minutes. You'll have to think about this. Love is the source of all the other attributes of God that we respect him and love him for. For example, we talk about God's grace. God's grace. God's grace means his unearned his unmerited, his undeserved favor that he gives to us, that we don't deserve his favor. But why did God show us grace? He showed us grace 
Because grace is a child of his love. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't demonstrate grace to us. God shows us mercy. Lamentation chapter 3 says, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because of our sins. But God is a God of mercy. And mercy is the result of his love to us. God is a God of kindness. Why is he kind? Because he cares about us. He loves us. God is a God of compassion. Jesus lifted up his eyes. He saw the multitudes, and he went, his heart went out to them with compassion. He suffered with them. He hurt with them. He felt for them in their distresses. Compassion. Where does God's compassion come from? It comes from his love. God is a God of patience. Why is he patient? He looks down at this world today, and my goodness, so many people are just spitting in his face in one sense. And yet God is so, so very patient with us. Patient in our errors, patient in our mistakes, patient even in our sins and our evil. God is a patient God. Why is he patient? Because he loves us so much. God is a God of faithfulness. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Why is God faithful? His faithfulness is sourced in his love for us. Now, when I tell you, though, that God's nature is love, I don't want you to turn that around and say love is God because it's not. You see, one of the mistakes, I think, of modern-day Christianity is that we have Many people have talked about God's love, but they never talk about his holiness. Now, remember this, that God is the most perfect, beautiful, wonderful being in all the earth. None of his creatures come up to the level of the creator. God is so great, we cannot even, we can only comprehend little pieces, little bits of him at a time, as it were. And so God is so wonderful, so great, and his character is balanced. He's not all love. There comes a time when God deals with us not in love, but he deals with us in justice. God's love never does do away with his holiness. God is fully love, but he's also fully holy, and he's fully righteous. And so God has all of these attributes or characteristics or qualities, we say. And these attributes of God are perfectly balanced to make him the most perfect being that has ever existed in all of, of eternity. You see, if God were nothing but a God of love, he'd be permissive. He'd just say, you do whatever you want and I love you. And it doesn't matter. But we also know that he's his love is bounded in and balanced with his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. We know that I read in my Bible reading yesterday, God is angry with the wicked every day. And so while he loves a wicked man, he also is displeased and he's angry with that wicked man. God is a perfect blend of his attributes. One never supersedes the other. Let me try to describe for you number two today for a little while, the love of God. And here's where I feel like the little leaguer batting in the World Series. I'm inadequate for the task. How could I begin to describe the Word of God? But I have 
about five words that I'll give you if you'd like to write them down there in the margin of your Bible somewhere. First of all, God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. And I would like for you to turn with me in your Bible back to the book of St. John, chapter 17. And because I think this is a very unusual thing that people don't often think about, perhaps you've never even heard it, but it's very important. John, St. John, chapter 17, Jesus is here praying for his disciples, and it's literally a matter of an hour or two or three before he's going to to die. And in St. John chapter 17 and verse 24, he's praying, and here's what he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Now, here's the phrase. Look at it. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says to the Father, Father, you have loved me before there was a star or a moon or a galaxy or a planet. Before there was anything, there was nothing other than the Trinity. And even back then, before the world was foundationed, you loved me. Now, we don't often think about that. Before there was the universe, there was God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He existed in those three persons. And here's what that verse is teaching us. It is teaching us that before God ever created anything else, that love existed. And the love existed between the members of the Trinity because that's all there was to love. There was this bond of affection and this love that gives unselfishly and looks out for the benefit of the other that existed between the members of the Trinity. Jeremiah, the old prophet, said in Jeremiah 31 and 3, he said, quoting the Lord, I have loved you, Israel, the people of Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I hear people say that God of the Old Testament never expresses his love. That's not true. Jeremiah 31, 3, I just quoted it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. God loved the Old Testament people in the same way he loves the New Testament people because God never changes. He's immutable. So God's love is never varied. He doesn't love you more than me or me more than someone else. God loves everyone the same. He loves them with the ultimate amount of love because he's God. His love is eternal. Number two, his love is infinite. The second word, if you're writing down, his love is an infinite love, meaning there's no limit to his love. It means that his love is endless and boundless. His love is infinite in every way. Jim, a while ago, referred to the spacecraft, and if you've been reading it, it's been a very interesting thing to me. In 2006, NASA shot up a spacecraft. It's about the size of a grand piano. It's not very big for spacecraft. That spacecraft has been flying through the atmosphere now for over nine years. 
Listen to this. It's going 31,000 miles an hour. Now, it's 25,000 miles around the whole earth if you flew around the equator. So this spacecraft is going around the world at a pace, at a speed, faster than one revolution of the world every hour. It'd be one and a, you know, like a fifth times around the world every hour. You and I can't even comprehend that kind of speed. Now, it's been traveling out toward Pluto, the furthest uh, planet in our galaxy. It's been traveling like that for nine and a half years at 31,000 miles an hour which means that in that nine years it's traveled over four billion, with a B, four billion miles. We can't comprehend that kind of distances. Four billion miles, nine years, 31,000 miles an hour, 24-7. And two or three weeks ago, it passed by Pluto. That was the moment it had been built for. It only, the camera was only on for a few minutes because it was going so fast it would pass by it. And then those few minutes, they got these wonderful pictures they've been sending back. It's so far out there now that it took four and a half hours for the radio beam to come back from Earth. And so it downloaded its information very, very slowly. And yet, now it's by Pluto. And what's it going to do now? It's going to keep on flying. Do you think out there there's a wall somewhere, and before you get to it, there's a sign that says, we're nearing the edge of the universe? Uh Uh-uh. Space is infinite. How could there be such a thing as infinite space? Only because there is an infinite creator God. And he made space, and he allowed plenty of room. And a hundred years from now, after you and I are not even a memory, that spacecraft will still be flying, they say. And it's already beyond Pluto. We can't even get our heads around things like that. And that's what man can do. Think of how great then the love of God is. The one who created all of that. Now, I know some of you think that was just a big bang or a big boom. But if you believe that, I got a bridge I want to sell you. Because it takes more faith to believe that story than it does the one that's written here in this book. I'm going to tell you that. The love of God is eternal. The love of God is infinite. A third thing I'd tell you about the love of God is it's unchanging. God's love never changes. Mine might. I might get so aggravated or hurt or disappointed in somebody that my love for them would change. But the love of God never changes never changes. His love is the same to all. Will you listen to me, please? D.L. Moody said, if people would ever get their head around the love of God, everybody would be saved. He said, nobody can really listen and think deeply about the love of God and reject the God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that. And so his love is the same to all the homeless man that I see walking up and down this street with his little backpack on his back. God loves him as much as he does the pastor of this church. The poorest man in this town, God loves him just like he loves the wealthiest man who lives in this town. 
those who feel rejected and don't have one single human being to love them, but God loves them. The mentally and the socially handicapped, He loves them just like He loves the sharpest scholar in the room. The lonely, the elderly, elderly, the old man or the old woman sitting up here in the nursing home whose kids never come to see them and who has nobody who ever visits them. God loves them just as much as he does. The most popular one in town. The abandoned, the rebellious teenager who's run away from home and selling their body on the street and dealing drugs. The parents may be totally burned out on them, but God loves them just as much as he loves the high school valedictorian. The most successful man in this town who lives in the biggest house and has the biggest bankroll, don't write him off. God loves him just as much as he does that poor fellow. Because you see, it's not based on the people. It's based on the character of God. Get a hold of that, my friends. God's love does not vary and it does not change because God loves everyone with an unfailing love. His love is unconditional, fourth word, eternal, infinite, unchanging, unconditional. What do I mean by unconditional? There is nothing that I could do that would make God love me less. If I ran off, stole the money of the church, left with a woman, and lived a wicked life, you'd turn against me. But you know what? God loved me just as much as he does me standing here in the pulpit. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? And I don't have any plans for the, what I described. <laughs> so don't go away on me. I don't have any plans for that. But I'm trying to make the point to you this. There's nothing I could do, no matter how foul or bad it would be, that would make God love me less. Let me tell you something else. There's nothing I could do to make him love me more. I could give my life to be burned, as Paul said. I could do the most heroic thing that anybody's ever done, but it wouldn't score me any points with God. God already loves me eternally, infinitely, unchangingly, and unconditionally. Now, we as human beings, we withdraw our love when we get angry or disappointed. We manipulate people even sometimes with our love, but not God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He already loves you ultimately. There's nothing you can do that'll make Him love you less. And fifthly, His love is incomparable. You can't compare his love to any other love. We can talk about the man, the love of a man and a woman. There's a pure, clean love, and they get married and live together for 70 years or something. But you can't compare that. You can talk about a mother's love, how she rushed into a burning building and lost her life to save her child, but you still can't compare it to the love of God. There's no love. There is no love. Did you hear me? Like the love of God, eternal, infinite, unchanging, unconditional 
and incomparable. Number three, how do we measure then the love of God? Do you know he did give us a measurement? Henry Ward Beecher was a great, great preacher and orator of yesteryear. And he made this statement, listen as I quote him, we never know how much one loves until we know how much one is willing to suffer for it. It is the suffering element that is the measure of God's love. And it is at the cross where we see the full measure of God's love. It's so important. I want to read it one more time. We never know how much one loves until we know how much one is willing to suffer for it. It is the suffering element that is the measure of God's love. And it is at the cross where we see the full measure of God's love. So the cross is the full measure, he said, of God's love. Now look again at 1 John chapter 4 there in verse 10. And I'll read you the verse. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement, the payment for our sins. And so the Bible confirms what Henry Ward Beecher said, that the measurement of God's love is the cross of Christ. Turn one more time with me in your Bible. I want you to see this and even mark it in your Bible. Would you go with me to the book of Romans, please? The book of Romans chapter 5, where there is this beautiful picture of God's great love for you and for me. In Romans chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 5, Romans 5 and 5. It says here, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that's a key phrase. Christ died when we were without strength, when we were weak, when we were helpless, when we could do nothing to save ourselves. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely or rarely will a for a righteous man will somebody die. Yet, for a good man, occasionally somebody might heroically die for someone else if the person were good enough and important enough. But, verse 8, God commendeth or demonstrated or proved his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Underline it in your Bible. Christ died for us. There is the substitutionary death of Christ. He died for us. There is the atoning, propitiating death of Jesus Christ. Christ died for us. He died for you. Personalize that. Don't generalize that and make that some generic thing that has nothing that touches your heart. God, God, the Bible says, Christ died for me. As unworthy as I am. In fact, he describes us. Look in verse 6. And circle with your pen there. In verse number 6, Christ died for the ungodly. What does ungodly mean? It doesn't mean necessarily mad, uh, bad. It means without God. 
That means the secularist, the atheist. Christ died for Bill Maher, and I don't know how, but there's the love of God. Christ died for Richard Dawkins. Christ died for that blatant atheist who shakes his fist up at the skies and said, if there's a God, strike me down, and God loves him so much he won't do it. The ungodly, those without God, the secularist. You think you're an atheist? You're a sophomore in college now, and you know it all? I want to tell you, you can rail against him, but he still loves you. He still loves you. Look in verse number eight. Sinners. That's the people who've broken the law of God. That's the people who've gone out and lived the party life. Who've, they're, they're immoral and adulterers and adulteresses and homosexuals and, 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 and drunkards and drug addicts and pimps and all those sins, robbers and murderers. They've broken God's law. They're Sinners, they've sinned against the very God who made them. But you know what? God's, look what it says in verse 8. Christ died for them too. While we were sinners, not when we cleaned up our act and improved and got respectable and became Baptist temple members, but while we were wicked, he loved us. Look in verse number 10. He went one more mile. Note the word enemy. And every now and then, somebody will heroically, once every decade or something across the world, somebody will heroically die for friends. But God died, Christ died for his enemies. Circle the word enemy. Those who hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, and still he loved them. And he died for them. Let me tell you, you know why a lot of people can't comprehend the love of God? Because pride, pride. They don't think they're bad enough to need that. I love that old song that we sometimes hear sung here. Megan sung it the other night. He looked beyond my faults. He saw my need. He looked down into my soul and he saw my sins. Pride. Deceit. I'm not going to preach about the sins of the flesh that you think the sinners do. I'm going to talk about the sins represented in this room right now. Pride. Deceit. A life of deceit. Let me talk about lust. Let me talk about covetousness or envy or bitterness. Let me pull the top off of our hearts and solace ungodly and sinners and even enemies. And he loved us. Go over to chapter 8. Just a couple of pages to the right. In verse number 35, who shall separate us from his love? Shall tribulation, going through trials and problems, sickness, things like that, or distress, just knock the dis 
the die off of that, and you have stress. That's where Americans live, isn't it? Shall stress take away, separate from his love? Shall persecution, which many of us believe could be on the horizon for us, or famine, a crop failure, food shortage, or nakedness, absolute poverty, or peril, or sword, violence, or war? Verse number 38, I'm persuaded that neither death that we experienced this week in our family, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that's devils, demons, Satan, and his powers, not anything present in my life today, nor anything that's going to come in the future, not height, nor depth, space, nor any other creature shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, how good. How good. It's, it's good enough to eat. That's good stuff. Nothing can separate you and me from the love of God. Question, how important is the love of God to you, my friend? Is it just a phrase you hear at church, or is it a reality that you consciously understand God loves you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.